everyone. This is Pastor Dane Johansson here to do a Bible study on 1 Peter, the first epistle of the Apostle Peter. Go through the first 16 verses. So we're going verses 1 through 16, and we will look at some application, the teaching that's contained in this first part of this epistle together. I'll first pray. Heavenly Father, Thou art the blessed God. Lord, Thou art happy in and of Thyself. Thou needest no happiness, no lack, no addition to Thyself from Thy creatures. All source of happiness is in Thee, for Thyself and for Thy creatures. O Maker, Thou art our benefactor, our proprietor, our upholder. Thou hast produced, created, sustained us, O Lord. Thou hast supported, thou hast even indulged us, O Lord, by thy mercies and thy grace, even saved, and now keep us through the power of thy Holy Spirit. Lord, thou art in every situation able to meet our needs to comfort us in our miseries, to lead us, to guide us, to bring us through trial and temptation. <clears throat> Lord, help us to live by thy power, to live for thee, to never be satisfied with the progress we make in our Christian faith, but to ever be moving forward by thy power, by thy grace, towards higher attainments of faith holiness, close walking with thee, O Lord. Help us to resemble Christ. May conformity to thy son, Jesus, <clears throat> be, the, be our primary chief end to enjoy these, to be like thy son, Christ, who enjoys thee most fully, O Lord, to live by his teachings in accordance with his actions, his heart, his desires. O Lord, mold us to look and act and speak like Jesus Christ. Help us to conduct ourselves in every hour of our lives like unto thy Son, to be holy as thou art holy, O Lord. Lord, help us to see thy unconstrained love towards us because of thy son, Jesus Christ. And may it lead us into holy obedience to help us render, cause us to render duty as a delight, as a joy to obey thee. Lord, when others mock us for our faith, that our faith might seem foolishness, that being meek, being humble, being destitute in ourselves seems foolishness. Help us to rejoice in our suffering for thy name. For thou hast called us not only to believe upon thy son Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Holy Spirit, help us to walk steadfastly towards that heavenly country, that country wherein thou dwellest as king, savior, friend, husband. A country of everlasting delights as we pilgrim to that great place a paradise, a land 
which is our true inheritance, O Lord. Support us by a greater sight of Christ where our, where our life is seated in him. Help us to cast our eyes above, not on things on earth, to see that heaven is our strength, Christ is our strength, our goal, our joy, our delight, our chief end. Help us to never turn back, even in the hardest of times. Help us to kill all desires for sin and false pleasures, Lord, that thou wouldest cause them to wilt, to disappear into nothingness in comparison to knowing thee, O Lord. Help us to pursue our heavenly journey by thy grace with joy. And to not live for the praise of man or the pleasure of ourselves or our flesh, nor for the temptations of Satan but to live for a closer walk with thee, a burning desire for thee and for the good and salvation of those around us. Lord, lead us now as we study thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 of the first epistle of Peter. This first epistle was penned Likely, sometime between 54 and 68 A.D., Peter is writing to comfort some Christians who are suffering. They're enduring some kind of suffering. It appears that might have been some sort of trial for their faith. They were suffering under persecution of some kind, suffering under some kind of need or lack, and ultimately dealing with their sin just like we do today dealing with temptations, dealing with Satan's wiles, his deceptions. And so too, these Christians that Peter was writing to dealt with the same things that we do. For we have to remember that the early Christians, as great as they were, even the apostles, all the great saints in the Bible were but men. They were, of, they were men of like passions as we are. They were with sin, but our Lord Jesus Christ is without sin. So he writes to them to encourage them in the trial and the suffering that they're enduring, the fiery trial, he says, that they're enduring. And so, too, in all of our stations in life, our situations in life, whatever we might be going through or struggling with, we must remember that God has placed us there, that he has given us his promise that he will lead us and guide us and be with us. He has even given us his Holy Spirit to empower us, to cause us to walk near to him. So let us read now. I'll make comments as I read. So let's read first two verses here in chapter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So we have here a pretty standard introduction that even the epistles of Paul follow, and even some of John, and some of the general Catholic epistles, begins with a salutation, a greeting as well as a benediction of blessing, a prayer for them. It's often a prayer in the beginning of the epistles. So that is something 
to keep in mind that we must be praying for one another, that we must be willing to greet the saints, the brothers, whether they're in different denominations or from different viewpoints, as long as they're not heretical, obviously, that we love the brethren. It's one of the greatest signs of a Christian is that they love the brethren. They love those who are saved in Christ as they are. But we see that he writes to the strangers who are scattered, the diaspora, it's often called, those who had been through, because of persecution, scattered abroad. It's essentially what that means. They've been scattered abroad. They were refugees, if you will, um, wandering, looking for a place to live and to stay. And they'd been cast off through, likely through some sort of persecution. So he's writing to encourage them as they appear to be still undergoing some sort of persecution. And we're going to see this, that up to, is it chap, or up to verse 12, so verses 1 through 12, he's, Peter's going to lay down some foundational, doctrinal, theological teachings that are to undergird the practical application of uh, his, his exhortation to them to carry on, to be faithful to love God and, and follow God and, and stay strong in the gospel and the faith and looking to Christ. So he's going to be starting off by laying down some rich theological foundations. And this ought to remind us as well that, especially being confessionally reformed, we have this amazing foundation upon which to build. Many people don't know or don't care about theology. Everyone is a theologian. Everyone has a theology, but most people are not blessed enough to have been placed in a time or a place or a church where they are even aware of many of these great truths that we are aware of. Many, many other Christians I'm speaking of, you know, the great majority of Christians are probably not reformed. <clears throat> and so they are missing out on this great foundation. Now it's a temptation that we, often have to fight to not just be about the head knowledge and not just be about these truths and trying to figure them out and articulate them correctly. We want, we want to do that, of course, but not to the exclusion of the purpose of them, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We know, uh, we are to know about God so that we might know him better and not just about God. So we have to continually remind ourselves of that and keep that in mind. But he continues on, he's writing to these strangers, these diaspora who are scattered, likely Jews. And he says in verse 2, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the, of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So elect. He's saying that they are elect. They are chosen. They are called out. They are set aside. They are foreordained. They are decreed to be the people of God. Now, this idea of election was common knowledge among the Jews. They knew that they were God's chosen people. They knew that they were elect to be God's people, but they were unaware of really what that meant. They were unaware that it wasn't just a national election. They weren't just elect because they were of the seed of Abraham. But the true elect, the true Israel, the true Jew is one who is united to God through and in Jesus Christ. Here he says, they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
Now, we know that the decrees of God, obviously, are Trinitarian. The Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ are all a part of that. But the, the head, the fountainhead of all of the decrees of God is God the Father. And it's not he foreknew as and looked through the corridor of time, whatever that might be, as many Arminians say and many evangelicals say. He didn't just choose things because he foreknew that they might happen or, or you know, deduced thinking, okay, if this happens, then that will happen, and then this will follow that. So a likelihood is that this will happen, and so a good choice of mine to make, knowing that these things might happen, is to choose this scenario. That is not the biblical teaching of God's foreknowledge. It's not the biblical teaching of God's knowledge whatsoever. Not just his foreknowledge, but his knowledge. He's not limited in his knowledge. He doesn't learn. He doesn't change. That's called the immutability of God. He knows all things because he has decreed all things. All things are part of God's decree. So his foreknowledge is not like our foreknowledge where we have taken the same route to work for months and we know that if I don't leave by 7.45 a.m. and I end up leaving the house by 8 o'clock, I foreknow that almost always there is a lot of traffic on the freeway. So if I don't leave by 745, I'm going to have to take another route or I'm going to be stuck in traffic. We don't we, we foreknow things in that way. And even that is mutable. It's not always 100% accurate. We can guess. We can make a good assumption. But this is not what God does when he elects, when he decrees. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Because God has chosen to do so. He has decreed that it be so. There's a few other interesting verbs here that we need to pay attention to. So elect, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification of the Spirit. Through sanctification of the Spirit. Not verbs, key words here. So foreknowledge, elect, sanctification of the Spirit. So God's election is not that we just get saved and that's it. Part of being saved, part of being united with Christ, is a process called sanctification, wherein we are being sanctified, we are being made saints, we are being set apart unto God to live unto God. That's what being saved is. We're saved out of our old life, our old calling, our old, uh, our old uh, way of life. <clears throat> the old man is put to death in the death of Christ, and the new man is raised to life in Christ unto the sanctification which comes to us through the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who works sanctification. He applies salvation, the work which God decreed, the Father decreed, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit then applies that work to us. What Jesus Christ did on the cross and in his life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension to us, that's applied to us. And then we live by the Holy Spirit's power. It says in First Thessalonians that this is the will of God, namely, your sanctification. His will is that we be sanctified, and when that happens through the Holy Spirit, living close to him in his word and in prayer and in fellowship with God and with one another, meeting in conference together to talk about spiritual things, spending time together, bearing one another's burdens, caring for one another, loving the brethren. And he follows that, showing how sanctification works. So you're saved according to the foreknowledge of God as elect people. And then this happens through the sanctification. This leads to through the sanctification of the Spirit. So sanctification of the Spirit follows this. And what does sanctification look like? Obedience. And it's based on the next part, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So all of this is wrapped up in that. Because of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, that was foreordained. We are elect to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
and we are sanctified by the spirit. Part of that sanctification process looks like obedience, turning away from sin, turning to God to follow him. Not for salvation, not to prove our salvation, for good works can do nothing. But because we love God, a person who is saved loves God, wishes to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, to be set apart because they are elect, because God foreknew them and the foreknowledge of God elected them in his decree to be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. So those who are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ take part in in the sanctification of the Spirit by obedience. So it's both God and man. Not in a synergistic sense, not in that we are helping our salvation, not that we contribute anything at all to our salvation, but that because he saves us, he gives us his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins sanctifying us and changing our will, our desires, and our actions, so that because of our love for him, we want to obey him, to follow him. Then he prays this to them, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. We need grace and we need peace. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Now let's continue on through the next section. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So chapter 1, verse 3 looks very similar to chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses that same phrase that Paul uses there about our election. And he says here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. Very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians. Because of the great love wherewith he loved us, he saved us. So here, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. We've been born again. We've been born anew. We've been recreated as new, cre- new creatures in Christ to live unto him. And this is all by his mercy, his abundant mercy. God demonstrates his love by being merciful to us. He does not, he's not required to be merciful to us, but because he's, he has chosen to demonstrate his love this way, he thus is merciful to his elect people, to those who are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. His abundant mercy, it doesn't run out. It doesn't run out towards us. Why? Because he's begotten us again unto a lively hope, a living hope, a hope that doesn't fade away. That's incorruptible. Hope that's based on Man, our performance, the government, situations in life, is not lively. It's not living. It doesn't continue. It, it's, it's, it's mutable. It's changeable. Whereas God's mercy is abundant. And it gives us lively hope, living hope. It does not perish. It does not fade away. Why? Because it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ who defeated death by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, was raised again, defeating death, hell, Satan, sin, has demonstrated that his mercy towards us is sure, is final, is living. It gives us a living hope. It cannot be undone. Those who whom he has saved are saved indeed. We cannot lose our salvation. We do not lose our salvation. We do not lose the hope that is given us, hope that is 
that is seen is not hope. The hope that is unseen, which is what we have, is living. It's a lively hope. And it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, who has given us his only son, his only begotten son. If he did not spare his son for us, he's not going to spare those other things that we need. So because of his election for us, we see we have this hope. Because the election has then come with the blood of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the giving of the Holy Spirit to us, who he was with the apostles while Jesus was on earth. But afterwards, he will be in the followers of Christ, which we are. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to give us power and strength and guidance and wisdom to follow after Christ unto obedience because of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Those things which are reserved in heaven are final, sure, immutable. Many of the plans and purposes of God, which are fulfilled and carried out in time in Jesus Christ, in what he has done for us, in his love for us. His abundant mercy has been demonstrated to us in what Christ has done, and this gives us an inheritance. And the Holy Spirit is a sign and a, a seal of our future redemption, that we have the Holy Spirit now sanctifying us, setting us apart, leading us, guiding us, that shows us that our hope is indeed living because we have an inheritance in heaven with Christ where he has gone before us to prepare a mansion for us. He's gone, gone before us to prepare a place for us, to intercede for us, and we will be with Christ. Now we see dimly as through a mirror, then we will see face to face. It's undefiled. It's incorruptible, this inheritance that we have. Namely, our salvation. It fadeth not away. It's reserved in heaven for us. No one can come into heaven and take our salvation from us. It's in the Father's hand. We are in the Father's hand. And he has given us into Christ. None can snatch us from his hand. Our salvation doesn't wax and wane. doesn't become corrupt. It's not defiled at any point. It doesn't fade away. Our inheritance is sure. Inheritance that we will reign with Christ, that we will judge angels, that we will be with him, drink from the river of life, dwell with the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, who now stands in glory and honor and perfection and power, the, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, who currently stands before God on the right hand of God interceding for us before whom all will come and be judged, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the surety. As sure as Jesus Christ is Lord, as sure as Jesus Christ is risen, so too is, so too is our inheritance sure. It's reserved in heaven for us. None can come and take it. However, faith can turn is the key that opens the lock to all the treasure chests of heaven to our inheritance. And that's where it goes into verse 5 as well, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, in those last days, when those whom God has predestined, called, justified, is sanctifying, in those last days when they will be glorified, and we, in a sense, already are glorified in Christ, though we have not been fully glorified, our body has not yet been redeemed. However, 
we are that is how sure our inheritance is that is how sure our salvation is that it is as if we are already glorified with Christ we are kept by the power of God we do not keep ourselves and this is the same thing we see by the apostle Paul in Philippians 1:6 that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus and then in verses 12 and 13 where he says that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's us laboring as if our salvation depended on us. Why? And, and, and unto obedience. We, we are obedient. We follow him as if it were up to us to keep our salvation, knowing full well that it is not up to us at all. It's all by Christ's power. We are kept by the power of God. So even in the midst of, to get to Paul, uh, to Peter's, context here in the midst of uncertainty in the midst of despair in the midst of hard times in the midst of trials and temptations and persecutions we can rest assured we have a hope a living hope for our inheritance because we are kept by god we are kept by the power of god not our own power and that is through faith and that faith is a gift right so we're kept by the power of god through faith, unto salvation. That salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. We have to keep our eyes focused on Christ and his work, both past, present, and future. All past, present, and future. His work in the past and redeeming us, paying the price for our salvation, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven. His work in the present by the Holy Spirit in us, sanctifying us, and our consequent obedience to him out of love and gratitude and in the future our future salvation our lively hope our inheritance is incorruptible undefiled namely our salvation that god keeps us unto our final salvation meaning our glorification which is ready to be revealed in the last time the last day verse 6 wherein ye greatly rejoice though now for a season if need be you're in heaviness through manifold temptations so again, he's laying this whole foundation for his readers, Peter is, and for us. That these truths are so substantial that we greatly rejoice, even though for a season, if need be, we are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Those temptations can be temptations to sin and the flesh, wrestling with the flesh, the sinful nature. Those temptations might be relational difficulties we're going through, might be Hard times that we've fallen on, losing a job, car breaking down, paycheck not coming in, whatever it might be. These manifold temptations that we're going through in this season of life. And we always have something going on. We're always at least battling with the flesh, Satan, and the world. But whatever these temptations are, these manifold temptations, we greatly rejoice. Why? Because we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We are being equipped and enabled to obey, though that obedience is pathetic often. And it's all because of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We have a living hope, a lively hope of the inheritance. We are kept by the power of God. Therefore, we rejoice even in our manifold temptations. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And, and here he's really getting into 
how this hope fleshes itself out, this living hope in the temptations of life that we face and the troubles and, and, and hardships that we go through. The trial of your faith. I talk about this sometimes, and I think about it sometimes, that faith really counts when there's an opportunity to obey in front of us. This is where we see where our sanctification is. We allow the sanctifying process of God that is as fire that purifies us, just as gold is purified. I don't know if any of you are familiar, but when they take a, a, a precious metal, they, they fire it and melt it down into a liquid. And what happens is all the impurities of the gold or the silver or the platinum, whatever it may be, rises to the top. And then they skim off all the impurities, all the other pieces of rock and metal or whatever other impurities are in it. They scoop that off the top. And what's left is this liquefied gold, pure gold. And so he uses the same thing. Our faith is more precious than gold, though it be tried with fire. Just as gold is tried with fire in the furnace, of a, uh, in the furnace so, th- so too we go through the furnace of affliction that our faith will be purified. That our faith will be purified. It's tried by fire. It's not pleasant as we go through it, as we read in Hebrews 13 about being under the chastising hand of God. But it's not always just hardships. It's not always just trials. It's, it's an, any opportunity you have to follow God. People pray, God, help me be patient. He's going to give you opportunities to be patient. And in those opportunities where you have to be patient, we often forget that right there in that moment we see, okay, here it is. Now I have this opportunity to be patient. And you pray right then and there, God, enable me by the power of your Holy Spirit to be patient with this person. Be patient with this trial, this affliction, this temptation. Give me grace to turn away from self and sin and, f- and the flesh and selfishness and to turn towards following after Jesus Christ, to be patient. But it doesn't even end just there. You, see, you recognize an opportunity to be patient. You've been praying for patience. You then ask in that moment again for patience. And then you walk forward and be patient. That's how faith works. That's how the trial of affliction works. So when we go through some tough time, some difficult temptation or affliction or trial, you know, uh, you know, God, I'll be faithful. Help me to be faithful, Lord, we ask. Help me be faithful. Help me to follow you. Help me to follow thee to love thee, to serve thee. So we're given these opportunities to obey, to follow after God. And it's those moments to actually follow him that count. That's how the furnace of affliction purifies our faith. And that faith is so much more precious than gold. If, If man spends so much time purifying gold, do you not think God, who works the faith within us, who gives us the faith, who grants us salvation, who gives us the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, will not then labor just as hard, just as diligently to purify our faith. If he's given it to us, he loves us enough to give us the faith, to cause us to believe upon him. Will he not also give us, just as he's given us his son, all things necessary to obey him, who with the temptation will also provide the strength, the way out, the, the ability to obey? Well, it's there, but we have not because we ask not, because we seek not, because we knock not. We do not knock, we do not seek, we do not ask, and therefore we do not have the strength and the ability to follow him. And when we do that, when we actually have opportunities in front of us to follow him and we take them, then God uh, uses those opportunities, uses that process to purify our faith. And it says that 
the trial of our faith, our faith, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So we will follow after Christ in this life. And this entire process of following God now is all for the purpose that when we come to heaven, we receive our reward, we receive Christ, our inheritance that is kept for us, undefiled, incorrupted, will be ours. We'll see face to face. We will have run the race, fought the good fight, and we'll have come will then come to receive the reward for our trial, our faith, our suffering, our following, our obedience. It says that this will happen at the glory, uh, will, will be unto praise and honor and glory. It'll all be to the glory of God. Our work from beginning to end is to praise God. It glorifies God. He has chosen out of one lump to make something honorable, his elect people. Why? For his glory. Because it'll be seen that it was from beginning to end, Christ, we were that all those who are in Christ, all those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, being sanctified by the Spirit, obeying him, it was all because they were kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Verse 5. We see here that it'll be at the appearing of Jesus Christ, that last day, where our inheritance will be made real, it'll be realized, fully realized. In verse 8, whom having not seen Jesus Christ, we've not seen him, Yep, we ye love, in whom, though ye though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full full of glory. Verse nine, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You found in the praise and honor and glory of the appearing of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, our Savior, our love, the love of our soul, though we have not seen him, we live by faith, we walk by faith and not by sight, yet we love him. That love has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. The love has been given to us by God because we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Being sanctified, drawn unto him, being kept by the power of God, we love him. You can't show me a Christian that does not love God. You can show me a Christian that has all sorts of bad works, that is backslidden, that has fallen into grievous sins, that has made horrible choices, that disobeys frequently. But you cannot show me a Christian that does not love God. And loving God will cause us to partake in that sanctification process. To be submissive to the Holy Spirit as he sanctifies us, which will, will have its end in obedience. So we love him, though we have not seen him. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing. How do, we, how do we love him if we have not seen him? Well, it's by faith. And that faith causes us to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory in the midst of whatever trial we are enduring, dear believer. Any trial we are enduring. And we all have many trials that we endure. Whether it be physical pain, marital issues, financial issues, persecution and mockery from family and friends that are dear to us. And yet, because they are not Christian, mock our faith. Maybe it even comes from other Christians that are unkind uncharitable, unloving to us. Maybe it comes from all sorts of things, whatever it is, in the midst of those trials, those afflictions, we rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory. It's as Paul says, uh, that we are, we are always rejoicing, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Meaning we recognize the hardships that we endure. It's not that we 
live in a fantasy land as Christians and pretend that these bad things aren't happening to us. The trial of our faith is not taking place. But in the midst of it, though we are sorrowful, we are sorrowful, yet we are always rejoicing. How does that work? How does that happen? Well, it's because we are kept by the power of God, and it's through faith. It's because we keep our eyes on him whom we love. If we keep our eyes on him whom we love, namely Jesus Christ, though we have not seen him with the eye of the body, we have seen him with the eye of faith. We have heard him with the ear of faith. We obey him. We love him. We seek him. We desire him. And the process of sanctification is to do that more. And part of that process of sanctification is the trial of our faith. Though it be as fire, it purifies our faith. It draws us unto Christ. It draws us unto God. It gets our eyes off the world. Helps us realize how fleeting and futile putting our hope in the consistency of this world, our possessions, our loved ones, whatever it may be, it shows us how futile it is to put our hope, our trust, our joy in those things that teaches us to put them in Christ where they belong. To look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. To look above where Christ sitteth in heaven, who is our life. Who is our life. And that gives us joy. Causes us to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Verse 9, which will re- result in receiving the end of our your faith, even the salvation of your souls even the salvation of your souls. Now, we do have to be careful because heaven is not, we're not given details about what heaven will be. What heaven will be. What even the new heavens and new earth will be. We don't have extensive details as to what we're going to do, what we're going to think and say, what language we'll speak, who's going to be there. And that's why all these people that have gone to heaven all have conflicting stories, quote unquote, the supposed books and movies and things you see about people, oh, I went to heaven and came back or whatever. They always have conflicting stories, and that's why we can't trust those things, number one, because there's the revelation we have about who God is, what faith is. All matters of faith and practice are given to us in the scriptures, but also because we know that no, that's not what happens. We can't put our hope in that. And so because there's all these conflicting ideas of what heaven is, and we're not given much, the Bible's largely silent on what exactly heaven is in the new heavens and the new earth. Both this intermediate state when we die, those who die now to go be with the Lord, and then when they return and we all join with them in the clouds and we are in the new heavens and the new earth, what that'll be like, we don't know. So because of this, it's easy for us when we think about heaven and cast our eyes above, put our hope in what is to come, the next life. We, we can be led astray very easily. We also remember that heaven is not the goal. Jesus is the goal. God is our goal. Our hearts, the reason heaven is heaven is because Jesus is there, because our, our, the love of our soul is there. That's what causes us to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory is because we'll have Christ, and we have a dim picture of him here. We walk by faith and not by sight. But one day we'll see him face to face and that's what makes heaven heaven. Everyone wants to go to heaven, whatever that is, quote unquote. You've heard this. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. To want heaven should equal to want God. Just as Paul said, for me to live equals Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is it gain? Because you go from walking by faith, living by faith, to living by sight with Jesus. The end of our faith is the salvation of our souls. 
which process has begun now? We didn't quite make it all the way to verse 13. We did make it through verse 9. I will continue on in a part 2 where we finish verses 10, 10 through 13. So that'll be it for now. I hope this was a blessing to you all and that this helps you cast your eyes upon Christ. This causes you to have joy and strength in whatever trial that you're going through or will go through to draw closer unto our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may you be greatly aided in this time. God bless you.